Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ, and today I'm talking with Nick Seneca Jankel. Nick is a philosopher, a serial social entrepreneur, and celebrated inspirational speaker who has given keynotes to audiences all around the globe. Uh, Nick received a triple first uh, summa cum laude degree from Cambridge University in medicine and philosophy on human sci- of human science, and his forte is in sharing scientific philosophical, psychological and practical nuggets that help people change their beliefs, behaviours and ideas so they can truly flourish. He's the creator of Breakthrough Dynamics and is the author of Switch On, Unleash Your Creativity and Thrive with the New Science and Spirit of Breakthrough. And he's been featured in The Times, Huffington Post, MTV, BBC, TEDx, absolutely like, and there was so, so, so many other resources and has worked with Microsoft, governments, Nike, Disney, Pepsi, Unilever, just to name a few. I think it was over like a hundred or like, you know, Fortune 500 companies, so way more than I could possibly list in this intro. Uh, And yeah, and through his books, his TV appearances and radio and print media, he's helped millions of people all around the globe. Uh, So Nick, thank you so much for being here today. It's absolutely incredible to talk to you. Thank you. So I was thinking, who is this guy? I must, I must meet this <laughs> guy you're introducing. It doesn't sound like me when I hear it all listed out. Uh, it doesn't sound like my, my experience of, of life, if you know what I mean. It's like, a, it's like the flipped version of it. And we, 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 we've just put your camera up a notch because we realised that we're wearing matching jumpers, which was a nice, it was a nice start. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read that it took, I think it, it took over a decade to write this book, Switch On. Right. Why did it? Why why do you write it? Why did it take right. so long? Um, well, the kind of the, the glib. I don't know if it's glib. The short answer is I could not write it. It was it was um, bubbling through me, and I had to get it out. Um, <clears throat> I guess some more detailed answers would be ultimately to get my own thinking straight, so that um, I could really know that I knew what I knew, if you know what I mean. So I so I can be of service more rather than still struggling to get my ideas straight. <clears throat> there was nothing like writing a book to get your ideas straight because you, you can't write one without doing that. Or you can't write a good one without doing it. And it becomes very obvious when you're re- editing where you're not, where you're not quite, you know, the, the, the line isn't quite clear yet. Um, so, so that was sort of a very personal reason. Um, and I guess the sort of driving force was to write the book that I wish I'd been given when I was 15, 16, 17, or 20, 21, 22, kind of, into, kind of atheist, kind of into science, um, scientist, um, but also knowing there was something else as well beyond science that I, that I didn't really know what it was and certainly didn't feel new age. And so I wanted, I've never been into the new age stuff, so it's taken me almost 20 years to sort of uh, come out the closet as a spiritual person for a start and then as a spiritual teacher i mean that's like a double closet um or closet squared and um i guess the book for me was a kind of listen if you're struggling if you want to work out how what kind of life you want to lead and you want to know what's really proven by science but also what is common to all these different spiritual traditions that seem to be so interesting but who's got the time to read all these different wisdom classics and incomprehensible philosophies if you that's you then read this book because it will give you a process by which to explore your truth find peace with your past but also understand how to create the kind of life you want and it may not be the kind of life that you thought you wanted before you do the work on your heart and 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 find peace 
and then you can build something that's really important. So that's so kind of the book, basically the book. What I, I've never read a book that I really was like, this is the book I wanted to always read. So I wanted to write that book um, and keep it out of new age. Um, write, write a deeply spiritual book that's nothing to do with new age. I love that. You, you mentioned just there about like, um, like definitely not wanting to be a spiritual teacher. And you, you were a devout atheist for over a decade. And, and I was. But, I was. but what, looking back or like, you know, what, what, was, what was wrong with the atheist model in your mind? Um, well, the atheist model works really well in a lot of domains. So if you are trying to get shit done with a project, atheist model's fine. You've got some pretty good evidence about what works, what doesn't work. But if you want to avoid burnout while make, making that project amazing, then it, 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 it doesn't have much to say on that. Um, so, um, or if you want to do a project that's purposeful, that comes from uh, some deeper sense of purpose, the atheist model doesn't have anything to say in that. Because the atheist model says what science says, which is the world is empty and meaningless. It's random that we happen to be here and there is no purpose in the universe. And I don't know many people who really believe that. Even the atheist scientists saying that, I think, are probably driven by a great purpose to do their actual scientific research. Because, you know, if you've ever sat in a lab uh, for year after year not getting the results you want, you know, you have to have something pretty deep driving you. So, so if you want to avoid suffering, unnecessary suffering, and if you want to create something in the world that's truly heartfelt and fulfilling and comes from your deepest sense of being then the atheist model doesn't have much to say. So and I wanted both those things. And I burnt out, suffered, had clinical depression, all those things. And so I kept thinking there's something, I've got a lot of the, I've got a lot of the answer, but there's something missing, obviously. Clearly, clearly there's something missing. And then also I was running a fabulously successful company as a 20-something-year-old, multimillionaire on paper, but it wasn't fulfilling me. So I was still in suffering, physical and emotional suffering, and I was doing something that wasn't fulfilling me and, and didn't know how to not do that. And that's when I went, boom, I've got to go deep and go back to these wisdom traditions that I had dallied with as a 15, 16-year-old, but no one had ever given me a, a non-new age way into them. And I just don't do didgeridoo and, and, and you know, trance dance. I just don't do that, right? That's not my thing. Um, uh, and so um, I realized I had to find the truth within these, this spirituality without taking on the packaging, which is, which is a style choice, not actually, you know, there's nowhere in the Bhagavad Gita or the Tao Te Ching, uh, two great wisdom passages, there's nowhere in any of them it says you have to wear tie-dye shirts, <laughs> right? Or you have to live on a farm or eat vegan or anything, right? There's none of that. It's not in any of these things. What these things are saying to you is how to understand your own truth. And if your own truth is, I love dancing to trance in Goa, that's how I spend my life. That's your truth. That's beautiful. And go and express that truth. But if yours says, I like Danish designed furniture, um, going to festivals and boutique hotels, but I'm still deeply spiritual and I want to live a spiritual life, then that's your truth. That's all cool too. Cool too. As long as neither of them, this is the key, neither of them are... You, you never mistake either style choice as the truth of things. They're just an aesthetic choice. Um, and not, well, not, look, not, not a universal truth. That's true for everyone. Right. It's yours. It's like, this, is, this, is, this is what's real for me. But it's not, even your, it's not even your essential truth either. It's just the choice you've made on style at the moment. So if you're ever... So, for example, 
me as a Danish furniture loving boutique hotel traveling dude, if I am put in a trance dancing goer, I need to be able to be totally at peace and, and connected to it as much as someone from that space who comes and lives in a boutique hotel without anger or resistance or judgment judgment. Cause otherwise you you've confused your style choice as the truth of things. Um, and it's not the truth of things is being at one at any moment, at any time being at peace and able to create with that, whatever's going on around you uh, without judgment, resistance, resentment, all those sort of things. So as long as you don't sort of, as soon as you, you get trapped into any lifestyle choice, you're not free. And that means you've got to run a business, but now you have to, like, you have to run it and you've got staff and all that stuff. You're not free. If you, um, if you have decided to never drink alcohol again, but something deep within you wants to celebrate a wedding with a glass of wine, you're not free, right? Because there are no rules that are always true at all times, apart from possibly one, which is we are love and oneness. And maybe that's the only rule. No other rules. Interesting. I think, I think you can imagine a world where there's even that rule doesn't exist. I don't think so. I think that's the, and, and it's actually going back to my philosophy days. So I got very into postmodern philosophy as a, as a student. The idea that there's no truth. God is dead. It's all relative. You're, if you want to be, um, you know, uh, this classic example is if you want to, to uh, circumcise women in Africa, well, who am I as a white man in England to say that's not your cultural truth? It's the whole idea of relativism. I got really into it. There's, just multiple truths, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, no. I was like, remember saying one day very clearly to my mate, well, there can be nothing after postmodernism. There can be nothing after the realization that there is no truth, just multiple strands of narrative. And then I discover oneness, the idea that we're all one and everything's connected. And I was like, oh my God, something came after postmodernism. <laughs> it's that, um, which is fascinating because the whole of postmodernism is about attacking any one narrative that claims to be the only truth, whether it's science or whether it's um, sociology or whether it's Christi- you know, Christianity or the church or anything. So I went full circle on myself and was like, there are always no truths apart from the one truth, which is we are all one and we are all interconnected. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I stay sane. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in fact, that last bit was the bit that allowed me to, stay sane if you like that was the moment that was the kind of ah so there's no truth but if i hold there's no one truth between me and you but if i hold on to this one thing at least i can stay anchored into something um i think a lot of people get spun out by sort of nihilistic kind of ideas of like nietzsche and things which is there's no one truth and you're like well hold on do i believe then and how do i believe anything and is it all meaningless and maybe life means nothing so i should just go and eat steak and drink whiskey and take ease and things uh, the sort of hedonistic nihilism of well fuck it nothing nothing there's nothing true and i think i mean i certainly got spun out by that thought and feeling and i actually remember one day i was 18 years old and i was in africa so i, I went to teach Afri- in africa for a year in a totally shambolic scheme. I mean, even the word scheme doesn't, is just too much for what this thing was. So I'm just in the middle of nowhere, in Zimbabwe, out in a village, and way too much time on my hands, marking books, teaching, I never taught anything in my life, and I had to teach, and smoking a lot of very strong weed um, in the area. 
And um, I remember thinking uh, one day, I, saw, I remember walking back from the bottle store, which is the sort of village place where, where everyone um, hangs out. And I just remember falling on my knees into the sand and just going, there's nothing in life that you can rely on or trust in. And I remember almost visually seeing an abyss in front of me, like an <laughs> abyss of, of what I would imagine was madness, right? Of just, well, not madness, but just like nihilistic nothingness. Um, and I remember looking down and going, I have to choose whether I'm going to go down there or not. This is a choice now. I get a choice. And I came back, you know, and I decided not to go down that abyss. But then I, had not, I didn't know what to hold on to. And so that took me another 10 years of sort of on and off depression, up and down, relationships failing, business stress, blah, 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 until I was like, oh, got it. Okay. And I guess, come back full circle to your question, my book, I hope, can short circuit the 15 years I spent out in the desert, the wilderness of, of confusion. <laughs> um, not which, just- you know, yeah, I mean, anyone can go down. It's not, it's not wrong to go into that wilderness, but it certainly, I think, can be avoided. I think. I like it. Not even, not even like a metaphorical wilderness. You were actually there. <laughs> What's actually in a wilderness? Exactly. <laughs> um, but in a way, actually, and I think probably people watching this might experience something like this. In a way, being in the middle of London or New York or whatever, and still feeling, feeling, in a, feeling yourself in a wilderness is actually more painful than sort of literally being lost yeah. uh, out, out in Africa or Asia or whatever. Because, you know, you there everything's slightly unreal. Mm. But when you're lost in the city and you don't know where your friends are, you don't know who your people are or your community is, um, there's an awful lot of suffering, I think, going on um, amongst people in the big cities. Mm. And we, You said that we, um, well, one thing is that we can't have any long-lasting positive change in our lives unless we first heal emotional pains and traumas within first. Um, right. And you're saying that, so this is why so many people, you know, we, we go to therapy, we read the self-help books, understand basic psychology, but we can still be addicted, angry, fearful, and locked in this right. mental behavior habits. Right. Can you maybe just, yeah. As in, so we got, we got, yeah. we got to go racially straight for the source, like the inner traumas. Yeah. I mean, this is probably the most important thing I've ever learned in my life. Or, you know, top five things into life to realize is that trying to change things that are deeply held within us by changing things outside cuts literally logically will only can only fail. Mm. So if you've got a deep sense of lack of connection to your dad, your mom, nature, you feel let down by what you thought was God when you were seven or, or um, by your siblings, whatever, if you feel any deep lack that, that is consistent has been for many years, and you try and, and it's inside, and you try and fill it up with sex, drugs, dancing, work, entrepreneurship, um, repute, fame and fortune, anything which is outside you, it can never work because the two things are not connected, right? Um, and that's addiction. And, I, and people say, I'm not addicted, but I would say 99.9% of people are addicted to something whether it's checking your Facebook to see if anyone's liked you today, um, whether it's um, rising at work so you spend two hours more than any of other people there, whatever it is, right? We're all addicted to something which is trying to fulfill this emptiness inside, this hole inside. Um, so that hole 
is very powerful because what it does is it starts driving all your thoughts, not all the thoughts, but a lot of your thoughts and behaviors out of a place of fear or lack or, or pain or suffering. Um, because one of the things we've learned in the last 20 years since I was at medical school, actually, is that we are fundamentally emotionally driven beings. There's a whole area called effective neuroscience, which is basically saying that we, used to, we think we're rational, but actually the rationality comes after we create a story about what we do. But what we do is driven by emotion. So if we're feeling really um, inspired, that inspires certain behaviors. If we're feeling really scared, that inspires certain behaviors. But it's just not obvious to us because we have this thing called story, which we create an illusion that we're rational. And certainly us in the West who have been given the sort of uh, bittersweet, uh, what's the word? Uh, what's the thing when you, when you inherit something? Inheritance, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, uh, you got and it. A bittersweet inheritance from the Greeks. This idea of pure reason. Yeah. That's the thing to go for. Actually, we're emotional. So if our system's been driven by emotion and we have a, a consistent emotion within us of lack, fear, loss, whatever, then no matter how much we try and change the behaviors, there's still the emotion anchoring those behaviors in place. So if you are working really hard because you feel like you never got the, the respect from your folks, I never felt seen by them. Let's say you never felt seen by them. This is a big thing for a lot of people. And so you work really hard. And then you realize you're still never, you can never work hard enough. You can never win employee of the month awards or, or even something grand like a TED fellowship. And never, nothing you ever win is ever going to relieve that feeling that you haven't been seen by people until you heal it inside. And the thing is, those people are no longer around. They could well be dead. Or if not, they're probably just not in your life as much as they used to be. So you, there's no point saying to your dad, who's 60 or whatever, going, I never felt seen by you. And he goes, well, I see you. It doesn't make a difference still. You still won't feel seen because the, 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 the memories of not being seen are deep inside. And, and the interesting thing about the brain is your pain memories, the ones that are really like, oh, this was a painful moment, are much nearer your amygdala um, than other memories. So they're really ready to trigger you into behavior, into a certain set of habits or patterns. So basically, the, sum, the nub of all this is, if you want to transform something, not just change a little bit, but transform something, something that's really profoundly anchored in inside you, um, a way of relating to the world. Um, let's say one of my ones was, used to be that I always wanted to sort of get to the next thing. So I was always very like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? What um, I used to call a f sort of fast forward button in my life. Well, that's just a, another learnt habit a way of avoiding being in the moment because the moment's quite painful. So if I get to the next moment, I can get more excited about it. I know. So if I'm going to change that, yes, being aware of it, going to therapy is really helpful. But until I alter the emotional feeling of what it feels like to be in the moment, I'll always use that or another addiction or habit to get out of the moment. And the ultimate noble is you have to do that yourself because no one else is going to do it for you. And that's the great work of life, I think, is to, is to do that work, to give yourself the love, attention, connection, um, sense of self-purpose, being seen, being heard, being respected, that you didn't get as a kid um, yourself. And when you do that, and, when you, and not just once, not like it's, oh, I saw myself, I feel loved. It's <laughs> like, okay, great, until the next time you triggered into feeling sad or lonely or upset or whatever, right? 
And so my work is my work with switch on and my whole switching on yourself is not about saying you switch on once. And yes, you probably do at one point have a big moment when people call it peak experience and enlightenment experience where you're like, oh my God, I get it. We're all one and I'm love and I'm loved and the universe loves me. And it's great. <laughs> Amazing, very precious moments. Um, but then life happens. And then, so the work is to say, you know, 80 times a day to switch back on. I say, okay, I'm, I'm loved, I'm connected. Now what do I want to do? And so the work of life, so in light, I say enlightenment, switching on is the start of the journey, not the end of the journey. Interesting. So if you're going off to try and find yourself to become enlightened and connect with the universe, which is definitely the first thing on the agenda, realize that that's just the beginning of the gate open into the challenges of living and a switched on life in every moment, integrating it, embedding it, embodying it so that slowly over time you become a person whose natural response to, to life is collaboration, um, compassion, caring, purpose, all the things we know we want. Mm. It just becomes more and more natural. And I'm by no means finished on that process. Um, I'm very aware of the process, which is why I wrote the book um, and ready to teach that. But I'm still, you know, a humble beginner on the process of embedding that into, you know, my chats with my wife, my two little children who, you know, frustrate me in moments, uh, my work, where I'm running two businesses, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. I'm writing another book, you know, all these things I'm doing take this from me every day to be my own, to be my word, to be my own, uh, you know, to drink, drink your own medicine or whatever the expression is. Eat your own caviar, uh, as they say in Silicon Valley. And is this, so this is, I mean, is this kind of what we're talking about with um, breakthrough dynamics? Yeah, it's, uh, breakthrough, it's actually, I, it's got actually a bit of breakthrough biodynamics. Biodynamics, my apologies. I added the bio. Um, well, the, it's actually important because the breakthrough dynamics sounds like a, systems thing or yeah. a physics thing or something the bio reminds us a number of things one all breakthroughs all creativity all connections occur in people in their biology brain second brain in the gut heart physical experience um feelings in your in your feet you know that's where breakthroughs occur is in biology so that's the first thing and actually the word biodynamic is out there a little bit at the moment. Um, you can get biodynamic wine, you can get biodynamic massage. Um, and it's sort of the emergent meaning means responding to what is going on in the moment rather than attempting to tell a client or an organization how to be. And so as a coach or a therapist or, a, or a, me, I've really sort of gone off the word coach, more like a guide, Yes, I can agree with you, a set of things we want to get out of something. But if I'm in that moment sensing that right now it, it's less important about designing your business model and much more important to deal with this pain from your dad when you were seven, we're going to go there. Because it means your system, your biodynamic system is ready for that transformation. Okay. Um, and that's, that's super important and challenging for me because I have to sort of give up my own agenda of... of um, and my own feeling that I'm going to get it right and succeed and be liked by my clients and things. Um, because sometimes I just have to go, you know what, that's just where you're at right now. That's where, you know, I've got to follow you. It's not, it's not my pro pro program of transformation. It's yours. Um, and so biodynamic kind of also basically means 
that the potential for healing for wholeness i don't use the word healing because it sort of sends me out into new age land but <laughs> the, uh, potential for wholeness which is the same root word the potential for wholeness is in every one of us all the time and i believe there's a thing called the like an, i call it the inner shaman you, we all have an inner shaman within us which is trying to be whole and it's trying to do whatever it can to help us be whole and if we listen to it it will tell us where to go to become whole okay yeah well, one thing i found was interesting i heard you talking about the difference between uh because on, on the surface they seem the same but I, I know there is a difference between being happy with loss and then thriving with loss mm. what, what what did you mean how can how can you thrive with loss well for, so for me the work the happiness thing is a is a is a real red herring um, certainly in the way that sort of the atheist community in the UK and the US have talk, taken it as a, as a way of seeking spirituality without spirituality. Because what it, happiness is kind of this belief that we should always be feeling happy about things. And actually, there are lots of things in life that I don't think the natural uh, response to it is, ah, that's great, you know, like your goldfish died. Woo! Let's reframe it and make it like, oh, the the goldfish is going off to the goldfish heaven. And now I feel really good about it. Now, actually, maybe it's time to be sad about the goldfish for a moment. Not, not for like hours and days and months, because that's tripping out on the sadness, but just sadness. So if you see a child, and I have sadly experienced this, who has just lost a parent or, or something like that, they will get really sad for like five minutes. And then it'll move through them and it'll be into the next moment. And then they'll be like, right, let's go do something else. But in those five minutes, they're not, I don't want them to be happy. I want them to, you know, it's right for them to be sad, to grieve, to let go. And, you know, it's a beautiful human experience. So to be happy during loss is kind is just, is, is sort of, I think, sort of happy, clappy American positive thinking nonsense, right? But to thrive during it means that you are fully living it, that experience of loss, and allowing it to do that healing, that wholeness that we just talked about, you know. So grieving is a natural state of letting go of something that's been attached into your being. And by really living it rather than pretending I'm not, actually I'm not sad. I'm going to be pretend to be really happy that I've just lost my mum or something. But actually going, God, it is heartbreaking, heart-wrenching if I'm feeling teary, just feeling that thought, right? And then I allow it to be there. That experience teaches me and allows me to release. And then, I, and, then five, and then five minutes later, I can go, okay, and now I can, um, you know, cook dinner or something or whatever. And, and by that, you are always flourishing through the ups and downs of life rather than pretending you have to be happy all the time. And some of that time might be really happy and some of that time it may be not. But if you're obsessed with being happy, it's kind of like almost like the hedonistic it's like a hedonistic treadmill, a hedonistic uh, pursuit, as if that's the goal. But but this is, you know, I don't think that's the goal. And this is actually ancient. This is not my original thought. This is the Greeks were were distinguished between uh, hedonia, which is pleasantness, happiness, um, hedonism, and eudaimonia, which is thriving, flourishing, which is the stuff that I'm at all interested in. Um, and actually, eudaimonia, interestingly, means to have a friendly demon within which could be that inner shaman. Um, the the, the demon, you've, you've taken your demons and you transform them within um, through these everyday experiences. Interesting. 
I've heard. I don't, I don't know if that's linked because I'm, I'm, I don't. I never st- I studied um, Greek or Latin. But isn't there's a word difference between stress and then you stress and you exactly. and you stress is actually the stress when you're at the edge of your comfort zone. It's 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 nerve wracking, but it's pushing you towards a positive thing. When as opposed to stress, when it's it's right. um, a negative thing. Yeah. So this guy uh, who sort of coined the term stress, and the people who came after him. Distinguish between eustress, sort of positive stress, and distress. Distress, yeah. Which is negative stress. Yeah. So, so stress is really, simply put, um, a, um, a demand on your system to, to do something, to react or to regulate. So, so um, as you said, as you said dis, uh, eustress is actually helpful. So when I do a keynote, so I'm actually tomorrow I'm doing a keynote at Google, um, which is quite exciting. So I will get a bit of you stress in the morning, and definitely like ten minutes beforehand, I'll be like a bit ooh, ooh, you know, <laughs> videoed, and then it's a bit you know it's one of those bigger deal keynotes rather than the sort of less you know, important ones. And so I get a, I'll get a bit of positive you stress, a bit of um, something that pulls me onto my edge that gets me. And if I didn't have that, I'd be I'd be like probably blasé and, and actually probably not good to not have any stress, right? Because I want to be a little bit demand, right? I want to be. You know, when you like, when you, you know, you've got a sports car, you want to take it for a drive. You want to give it a bit of, you know, use that beautiful engine and see what it can do, right? But if I allow that to go into a cycle of something like, oh, I'm crap at speaking, or if this doesn't work, I'm never going to get a job again in my life, that stuff, I will soon go into distress, which will then create a whole cascade of um, too much. Uh, adrenaline, too much cortisol, which leads to inflammation and literally kills us. Um, and then I get tunnel vision, tunnel memory. I can't remember all the times I've spoken well. All I'll do is focus on this one time that this memory of me doing something terrible, and I and then I just won't be very good. <laughs> and then I'll create my own um, reality, right? Um, so, so yeah, there's, stress is an interesting thing. Everyone needs stress to thrive, but most of us are living under too much stress. Um, which you can a little bit to do with the way we think about life and a little bit to do with the habits we have and a little bit to do with the uh, emotions we have. And that's really where, where this work is about, is about saying, okay, wherever you're feeling stressed or stuck, that is where your inner shaman wants you to transform something. Um, and the way I look, put it is this. If you're feeling stressed by anything, imagine there's someone who wouldn't be stressed in that position and they must have something about their character that, that, that is different to yours that you could use, that you could be like or develop. So therefore, any time that we're stressed or stuck, it's, it's a signal that something within us isn't as big or strong or huge as it could be. No judgment, no reason to be like, but you should be like that. No shoulds. Just, okay, if, if there's an entrepreneur who could take a company through what I want to do with my company without stress, then then the stress I'm feeling is a sign that I want to become like that and grow that, that skill set, right? Or if there's a parent who can take a screaming child for two hours and not get angry and, and shout, I want to be like that. Great. So I'm going to use this experience as a way of transforming myself into that kind of character. And so everything's, everything suddenly becomes this opportunity, an invitation to be the best possible version of you without getting upset that you're not there yet because it's process right it's all process i like that 
It's just, yeah, every single time, it's just a signal. It's not, yeah, it's not like, oh, beat yourself up. Like, oh, how crap am I? It's like, hey, you know, yeah. this is a trigger. That's something I've got to work on. That's something I've got to grow to improve on. Exactly. No trigger. Life is process. Life is learning. Yeah. That's the thing. You could even say God is learning, right? Universe is learning. So there's no point saying I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm angry with myself. That's just more of the bullshit. But recognizing it going, ah, I'm not as amazing a conscious parent as I'd like to be. Okay, good. That's going to be my project for the next few months. I'm going to really pay attention to those moments or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're doing. So actually, here I would go live. I mean, one of the ones that I'm working on. Um, so I did, I did a talk at Secret Garden Party, uh, the festival, uh, the weekend. And, and I realized I've got these two modes of being, which I've developed, but I was finding it challenging to bring them both together. And one mode is keynote speech ideas guy chucking out a load of awesome, interesting nuggets and like you've read it on my thing, which I've, I've done for years and, I, and people seem to like. And then this other part of me, which is really good at teaching and meditation and wisdom and transformation, helping people transform. And they're not interested in facts and figures that, that much, right? And what I'm doing with my work is trying to bring those two together so that, as my wife said, there's only one Nick. And at the mo- in the last, up until like a year ago, I was living with some multiple Nicks. I was like consultant, clever guy, working with like number 10 and big companies or whatever here. And then I was like spiritual wisdom teacher, meditation teacher over here. And I was purposely sort of going, don't you guys think see each other because then you'll think. <laughs> what the hell is going on? About me. Right, exactly. You've you got a suit As, over here and you're wearing a hat happened. over there. <laughs> so in the US, I've had people who run sort of some of the spiritual radio shows and whatever going, well, how can this guy be a wisdom teacher if he's been working with large companies? And I'm like, well, when you ask me that, live rather than think discount me um and uh so then i've gone you know what i need to be one guy in all situations so this year i've spoken at yale and number 10 just to give two examples number 10 downing street but i've also been at secret garden party and um uh teaching you know um at a psychedelic conference so right so how can i be one guy in all those situations um and so that's my one of my thrive edges at the moment is um being really mindful when I'm in these different situations where I'm erring towards only showing a part of me to return to center and go, you're going to get all of me. Um, and if that upsets some people that I'm using the word conscious or talking about business in, you know, that's just the way it has to be. And so that's one of my areas of, of development at the moment is being able to seamlessly slip between teacher and um, uh, speaker or, you know, whatever those things are. Um, And, you know, that's one of many, by the way. It's not like it's the only one. 